Hi, this is Natalie Wires with Digital River. Welcome to a special edition of Commerce Connect, a four-episode series we're calling Uncertainty into Opportunity. Throughout the next few months, we'll hear from some of the world's top e-commerce experts as they share their strategies to build a strong direct-to-consumer e-commerce channel, which is your best defense against retail disruption. Listen on to learn more about strategies to turn an uncertain time into an opportunity to grow your e-commerce business. Hi everyone, I'm Mike French, Vice President of Partnerships at Digital River with the second of our Uncertainty into Opportunity series. Know your audience and uncover new opportunities, how to market your online store. This podcast follows our live events and you can learn more about those at digitalriver.com slash opportunity. I'll start by thanking our promotional sponsor for today's episode, Elastic Pass. Uh, as a leading API-first headless commerce service, Elastic Pass' mission is to build technology that accelerates growth, making it easy for standout brands to deliver unique digital experiences to unlock revenue growth at speed. Uh, we have a great panel for you today as we dig into that topic. Uh, and I'm going to start by introducing uh, Linda Busto. Uh, Director of Digital Commerce Strategy at Elastic Path. Uh, Linda is in demand as an international speaker with 13 years as an industry analyst, consultant, and commentator. Linda has worked with well-known brands of all sizes on digital transformation and is the author of the Elastic Path blog and e-commerce illustrate. Uh, Linda, if you could say a few words. Well, thanks, Mike. Um, it's exciting to be here with, uh, I always love to chat with folks who are in this space and interested in geeking out on e-commerce and digital transformation. Yeah, thanks. I, I sometimes think of myself as the number one audience member uh, getting a chance to listen to experts like you. Uh, and next we have uh, Rahul Sandil. Uh, Rahul is the head of global marketing and consumer products group uh, for Micron Technology. Uh, Rahul leads a global team of marketers responsible for brand, digital marketing, channel marketing, e-tail, and e-commerce in existing markets, as well as driving growth in new international markets. Uh, that's quite a scope of responsibility, Rahul. Uh, if you could, please introduce yourself. Thanks, everyone. Hey, it's great to be here and uh, meeting old friends like Jeremiah and making new friends in Linda and Mike. Um, it's been a long journey, but I'm here now at Micron and, and uh, at Crucial. Uh, and, and I think the best part about the job is leading a great team of marketers to bring our products to life and all across the world. Great. Thank you, Rahul. Um, and Jeremiah Andrick. Uh, Jeremiah is a direct-to-consumer advisor and consultant who's been building uh, direct-to-consumer customer experiences for 15 years at global and digitally native companies, including Logitech and HTC Vive. Uh, right now, Jeremy is consulting with digitally native direct-to-consumer startups and looking to launch products this year in the sports and food industries. Uh, Jeremy, if you could. Hi, uh, it's uh, good to be on with everybody. Um, you know, I appreciate the intro. I've uh, been working in this space for quite some time and, and uh, I'm excited to see more and more brands engage directly with their, their customers. And it's an opportunity for all of us uh, who've been in this space fighting for uh, e-com for a long time to actually get to see the fruits of our labor um, paying off during these uh, challenging times right now. So, 
Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really interesting point and something we'll definitely touch on and get into today. Uh, so I'd love to pick off, uh, pick up rather right where we left off from our live event. And we were discussing, you know, a lot of aspects of engagement leading up to acquisition. And we were just getting to how we continue to engage with customers, how we turn them into return customers, how we retain them as we move forward. And it seems like today, in today's world, marketing is being asked to do things as it relates to that ongoing customer life cycle that maybe we never have in the past. Uh, Rahul, I'd like to start with you because you talked a, a bit just about the nature of Micron's products and how they might be products that you know, a customer purchases uh, and they might not have another need for a purchase for two or three years. So, you know, how do you connect those dots? How do you stay engaged with the customer over a period of time? So on the consumer side, that happens quite a bit, right? Um, we have a pretty big gap between the first and then the follow-up purchase. So one is through content. So, you know, whether it is blogs, how-to videos uh, on social media, so we deploy kind of all the standard tool sets. We are now <clears throat> delving deeper into CRM, uh, looking at some automation tools. But um, yeah, so I think leverage, leveraging the traditional marketing mix, add that to social media, digital content is how we are kind of engaging with our customers, both end customers and channel partners. So it sounds almost like you're, you're, you're kind of continuing to, you know, we talk about it as engagement, but it sounds like you're continuing to offer them a, a service that they value, right? Uh, not just, you know, here's, here's something beautiful to look at, but here's some, you know, meaningful, meaningful or value, valuable information to someone who's maybe a PC builder that, that they want to stay plugged in on with what's yeah. happening. Is that, and one is that of the right? One of the most valuable tools we actually offer our customers is a tool we built, I think, 15 years ago. It's called the Crucial um, Memory Scanner. So it's, 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 uh, and it's kind of interesting, right? In, in 2020, um, uh, entering in 2021, kind of, even today, we have hundreds of thousands of customers who come to our website. They let us install an EXE file, which scans the entire computer. Um, and tells them what memory they have and what memory or storage they need. And I think that is the strength of the brand we've built, that even today, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of customers come to us every month, allowing us to install an EXE on their machine. It's unheard of, right? And, um, and I think that's one tool we've used to really build that long-term relationship. Our customers see us as memory and storage experts, and, and they rely on our advice to upgrade the computers. Yeah, that's, uh, that's really compelling. Uh, you, it, it gets to one of the things that, that comes up in marketing, and I, I'm gonna shift away from the, the ongoing engagement just for a moment, because uh, you said something that I think really hit home, and that is you are perceived as experts in this space. Um, and one of the things that uh, you know I, I hear a lot of marketing and customer engagement professionals uh, talk about is how critical it is to focus on the things that really only you can do, only you, only your brand can do, uh, to be deep experts in your product, to be deep experts in your vertical, 
and to bring that deep expertise into a valuable source of content and information in addition to thinking about things like your product and your pricing and your merchandising. Linda, I'd love to go over to you on that question. Uh, that concept of really focus on the things that only you can do. Um, how is it that you know somebody like an elastic path plays a role in freeing up or making it possible for brands to focus on that experience layer in the commerce experience or that uh, ongoing in engagement that's, that's really helps them do what they do best. Well, yeah, I mean, that goes to, you know, what, what really is a competitive sustainable advantage and does that really exist, especially with technology? You know, if you can build it, someone else probably can too. With a product, if you can build it, someone else can do that too. You can get into, you know, legal, uh, legal protections, patents, trademarks, all that kind of stuff, but still it's very difficult to defend. Um, so what we're seeing, like some of our customers actually do is take so they start off with product, they're B2B to supplier, B2C supplier, whatever. But um, once you get enough data or once you can build um, value around the product, you actually end up becoming a technology company yourself, right? So you've got the e-commerce platform, integrate it with data, integrate it with, you know, user tools. Uh, we have one customer in the, um, in the med tech space and they've built... Uh, portal so that they're B2B customers and they're selling into, um, you know, labs and hospitals and all that kind of stuff. But the individual user gets so much value add from the portals that they built, which are connected back into their product. And even using things like on a subscription basis, right, um, being able to reorder products um, in an automated way based on usage because you built in an internet of things connection and maybe using blockchain for smart contracts and all that kind of stuff. And just being able to add value to the customer that's much more difficult. It's kind of like that, you know, you've bought into an entire solution. So it's very difficult to switch to another supplier once you have all this added value wrapped around the business and the business model. So I think, you know, a great opportunity is actually using your digital experience and finding a way to productize it, um, not just around commerce, but around a whole bunch of other things and utilities. Yeah, I think back, it's, it's a really interesting point. I, I want to build on what you were saying about uh, from subscriptions in just a second with, with your perspective, Jeremiah. But we had a guest on a couple episodes ago from a company called Residio, which uh, deals with a lot of the uh, home products uh, of Honeywell. And she had mentioned that you know, the fact that they have an app and the fact that they can gather this data together for consumers uh, gives them a tremendous amount of insight into how the consumers are actually using the product that they can turn around and then use to drive meaningful engagement with the customer that they're actually going to value, right? Um, and and that, that sounds like it's maybe an example that comes along the line of, of what you were just describing. Do you think so? Yeah, uh, I assume you're talking about uh, Lori Mizuko from, from Residio. She's awesome. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think one of the things that her and I share in common is this goal to continually work and build um, a kind of single customer view within our product set and there are um, there's ways to do it with just about any category of product but you know building a consumer lifecycle where customers opt in and you 
you are able to collect their purchase history, their data, you make recommendations, you allow them to um, interact with you and you collect those interactions is really, I mean, you know, you look at a subscription brand and they're the obvious place for those kinds of, <laughs> of uh, data, but even on a single purchase brand, you know, letting the customer opt in to telling you this stuff is super, super useful. It's why people used to send out registration cards. We're just gonna try and take it to that next level so that we can then um, use that to better even support them. You could, you can track supporter interactions over time and, and, and help, uh, ensure that the, the aftercare experience is so great that they, they can't help but want to come back, you know, and shop again. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, there's, there's no expectation that you're going to get a hundred percent of them to sign up, but if you put the right value in place, you get enough engagement that you've got a, a good critical mass of data to work from and assure that you have that compelling ongoing engagement. In the long run, having that single customer view will also help you to support privacy uh, requirements because that That's ability right. <laughs> to identify actually GDPR and CCPA, those kinds of things, it, it's, yeah. it's sort of the, the, the unspoken thing we haven't talked about with those, those laws is, is that it actually, they almost require you track more data so you can identify the customer so that you can remove their data when they tell you they don't want you to hold that data anymore. And so, uh, you know, otherwise it becomes impossible to track that consumer. So it really becomes a benefit on a whole bunch of different levels to, to build those systems out. Yeah, and that's, you, you, you took it exactly where I was going to go next, where I'm sure a lot of folks in the audience were saying, wow, but this is a, this is a fine line to kind of walk. Uh, we want to collect this data, but, you know, every time we turn around, there's a changing regulation around what we can, can uh, what we can collect and how we can use it and what types of consent we need to have. And it's different in this market and different in this country. Um, Rahul, I'd love to hear from you again uh, on this front. Uh, you know, Micron uh, and through Crucial and, you know, on the consumer side, you do a lot of work in a lot of different countries. Uh, how, do you, how do you keep this straight? How do you keep it straight what data you're collecting? How, how do you assure that you're in compliance with these regulations? Obviously, you know, being part of a larger company, we have more resources at hand, whether it's legal or um, compliance, uh, privacy resources. But I think at the core, it comes down to kind of more foundational, right? Hey, what is our intent here um, uh, as, as a company? What's our vision? What is the mission that we're trying to drive? And those foundational pieces become really important. And then you have to articulate them down the org. Uh, and in our case, right, uh, the core of our brand uh, on, on the consumer side is we want to be always perceived as the memory and storage experts. You know, so when, when people do come to an expert, whether it's a memory and storage expert or you go to your doctor, you know, that brand is built on that trust and, uh, over the years. So one is the intent, you know, why am I collecting this data? Um, two, what am I gonna do with it? Is, is the mission truly just to make my customer's life better or to give them more, in our case, um, make their compute experience faster, better. Um, and so it, the intent really comes down to it. Uh, I want to add a quick point uh, uh, on the subscription side. Like, so in our previous gig, uh, in my previous job, uh, we, we created a, the world's first VR subscription model, right? Um, where every other platform provider was selling content um, so I was at HTC, at HTC Vive, leading the 
uh, VR content stored by port. I think it's really important to also identify those high value actions, which you know customers want to engage with you for. So in our case, in, in my previous job, the high value action was people wanted to you know, they buy an expensive VR headset, but now they want content. The headset is just a means to an end, and the end is the consumption of content. So making sure that we are bundling in free trials of our subscription so that more people can try the content, that becomes really important. Yeah, very interesting. And I think, I think it gets a bit to, you know, as you talked about, uh, we talked about this concept of subscription and uh, I'd, I'd like to come back to you again, Jeremiah. You know, there was a time when, uh, at least earlier in, you bought a subscription and kind of from the company's perspective, it was, okay, you know, you've got this one product, uh, you know, we're going to support it and update it. But effectively, if, if you want to use it, you have to keep paying us for the rest of your life right? And like everything is a subscription now and it feels like everybody's just kind of like renting everything. Uh, but aside from things like, you know, updates and security patches on software, you know, what are companies doing to really make that subscription service valuable? What are companies doing that, you know, when somebody is, is getting toward the end of or maybe coming up on a renewal period, uh, What's a company doing to you know help customers understand you know the the value that they're getting on this ongoing basis uh, from a subscription? That, you know what do they have to know about their customers to do that? I mean, I think you you hit on one of the things that I think is we're starting to see is is that subscription there's actually kind of a subscription fatigue um, that people are getting, especially because people lose track of those subscriptions. Um, it becomes a bit like the gym. And when you go to the gym, like the economics of making the gym work is, is that you have to have more people who don't actually show up than those who do to make the, the financials of those things uh, work. And so um, I think, you know, what you are seeing is, is the companies that do subscriptions well continue to provide additional value. There's a, there's a startup um, called Linhard um, N NYC that, that sells toothpaste. And every month you get a new toothbrush and you get toothpaste. And um, you know, these days you can subscribe on Amazon for toothpaste. So you might say, well, why, why get that? Well, because they're coming from dentists. They also send other dental related stuff that just comes along as a sample. And then they sell those um, off subscription. So I, I think like sometimes where, where a subscription has to work is, is that it works within something that you are, you are getting that value, um, whether it's the added value or the savings of not having to worry about you know, replacing your toothbrush every three months or replacing at whatever frequency you should be doing that at. Um, but I think an even better example is the way Peloton um, or even like the SoulCycle bike have added, um, when you subscribe to their services, um, you not only get the content of new and live rides, but you get access to other equipments, um, uh, videos and trainings as well. So it becomes a, a content add-on for that subscription price. And what you're really getting in those cases is also that encouragement to continue using the device, which is beneficial because if you just bought a $2,400 bike that's sitting down in your basement and nobody's using it, um, then nobody wants to pay the 40 bucks a month or whatever it is for the service too, right? So um, you've got to keep people using the product. We don't want people thinking about our products. We want them using it. And so I think being top of mind is the way to make the subscription work. And 
content can mean a lot of different things. It could be educational content um, in a product category. It could be optimization if, you know, if you're talking computer hardware. Um, there's a lot of places where subscription can add value by providing information um, to that experience. The other area, one last thing, is like priority and customer care is a huge thing. I know like, you know, there are, there are several high-end brands um, in the consumer electronics space that when you are paying for subscriptions um, around their product category, you are prioritized for, um, you're prioritized for customer care simply because, you know, there's that extra monetary incentive for the company to do that because they want you to continue paying for that subscription. So, um, you know, you can, you can provide a lot of different things within the experience to help that keeps people paying and that should be the goal. Thanks a lot, Jeremiah. Um, one of our guests and expert analysts, uh, Rahul, has to leave us. Uh, so uh, thanks a lot, Rahul, for joining us uh, today. Appreciate your insights, uh, particularly around uh, you know, the way that Crucial has evolved and changed over time to work with different segments of customers. I'll give you just a, a quick chance to say goodbye to our audience. Thank you, everyone. And uh, a big thanks to uh, Mike and the team at Digital River. We, we are really happy to be partners of Digital River, and it's a new partnership, and I'm looking forward to many more years of such collaboration. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Rahul. So, Linda, let's come back to you. Um, we started to get into, in the live event, some discussions around tooling, some discussions around some of the technology that we apply to, to solve for uh, finding out who our customers are, engaging with them, and really kind of owning the experience around them. Uh, and when we think about some of these aspects of ongoing engagement, uh, it sounds like we keep coming back to data and really just knowing, having just rich data about your customers, knowing who they are rich data about your products and understanding how that matches up uh, to your customers. Uh, what are some of the, the innovative things that you're seeing some companies, maybe that Elastic Path works with, uh, what are some of the innovative things that companies who've, who've managed to capture that data have really been able to get out of it? I think there, the data challenge is you need a lot of it to make reliable decisions and predictions and to be able to use it well. That's one challenge. The second challenge being, um, you know, when we live in a distributed world and touch points are fall within your ecosystem and without your ecosystem, you know, through channel partners, through different advertising touches that you can't reconcile, through different devices as people bounce through their journey. And then even the psychographic data, like just the way that people think about your product that you can't capture at all. You know, they, they came and did the thing on your website, they hit here, there, and the other thing, but the why isn't always captured by those tools. So that leads to the third issue, which is, you know, we don't always have the data analysis experts on our team that can really parse this all together and make reasonable decisions. So, um, so if you have the luxury of sitting on a lot of great data, that is you know, coming from a reliable source that's um, quantitative enough that you can make reliable decisions, you're lucky. There's also a trend that I'm seeing of companies acquiring other companies. You know, If you wanna really grow, like you think about 
um, Caterpillar being one of them. They might not have had some usage data around their actual um, equipment that they sell, but there were other companies and tech companies that built solutions around that, you know, the timing, the pacing of paving a road, for example, right? There's a lot of things that go in there um, that, that impact the actual job. So Caterpillar looking at that and going, well, we can buy a third party that has this data and now we can offer that utility to really entrench with the customer that now we have a value add um, and then they can use that in selling in different ways. So, so sometimes there's there's creative ways to skin that cat. The other way is tapping into you know data of some of these big platforms that just know everything about all of us. The Google, the Facebook, the Facebook ad marketing <laughs> yeah. really good right now. So you know there's even a case where even if you're small, you don't have to have all the best data. Just a smart use of somebody else's yeah. <laughs> network. Yeah, it's, it's it's funny, right? Anecdotally, this past weekend, I'm going to the hardware store. And I'm looking at Google Maps, and it's telling me that it's very busy right now. And I'm thinking to myself, it's telling me that because people have location services turned on. I don't want to turn mine on, but I want everybody else to have theirs on so I know if the store is busy or not. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of funny. Uh, Life hacks. You know, yeah, the, the, the way that it changes over time, it, you know, and, and things that maybe uh, just the, the demographic changes, you know, for uh, for, for folks, I mean, I'm a Gen Xer, um, and, you know, people in my generation are maybe a little bit more paranoid about their data getting collected, uh, and some of the folks in younger demographics, uh, they, just, they just don't really, they don't really have a concern about it. They don't really have a concern about sharing, you know, uh, data maybe beyond, or anything that's beyond, say, something that's, that's personally identifiable. Um, you made an interesting point about volume of data, right? Uh, and how a lot of times the, the volume of data can help us, can help us get past uh, the, the extent to which we might have very rich or very high quality data. So from a customer engagement standpoint, we think about that data, uh, the data volume, the data quality problem. Uh, is that something, and, and Jeremy, maybe, maybe, you can, maybe you can comment on this. Uh, is that something that just you, you have to develop as a discipline over time? Um, how you make use of that? How you you know evolve over it? Is that something that you layer? Is that something that you layer uh, testing over, uh, Jeremiah, or is that is it something different? Well, I'm glad you brought up testing because that's I think that is ultimately one of the biggest answers to that question. Um, you know, I was recently chatting with a company and we were talking about their KPIs and they're very, very data oriented company. They have a lot of data around customer behavior and um, what people are looking for and how they're interacting. But in deciding what success means for their customer, they're having a really hard time. If you and I, Mike, are both outside and it's 76 degrees, you might think it's super, super cold, and I might think it's perfectly warm. Uh, the KPI hasn't changed, but our interpretation of it, of it has. And so I think it's, you know, testing, um, whether it be at the multivariate level or, you know, just um, even uh, testing certain customer groups or segments is how we can kind of define a little better what success looks like for each customer. You know, um, I like to use the word task completion. And just because somebody added 
something to the cart doesn't mean that it was a success. And, you know, that's part of why we build, we build a ban, um, cart abandonment strategies. That's part of why we build, you know, follow-up emails and things like that is, is that we want to encourage someone to complete the full task. And so, you know, an ad might be meaningful, but you might, the customer might be meaningfully lost. And so, um, right. I think, you know, <laughs> When I was at HTC, one of the things we used to have on my wall was um, a bunch of printouts that me and my team had come up with of different possible customer journeys that we were tracking and how would we define success for each of those. And, you know, so we had measured from the, both the starting point of the journey to the sale to what happens after the sale. And, you know, over time, what you're looking for in that big data is the chance to reduce that data down to intelligent questions and answers. And I think that's the real opportunity in having so much of that data or even starting the data journey. And so I do think it's a practice, but it's a practice that, yeah, you can hire a business analyst or a data analyst to work through, but you need that competency at all levels of your team, both the executive level, the, the, you know, the merchandiser, and running that your media buyer like everybody needs to be data savvy and needs to be willing to ask tough questions around what the data means and, and that should be a primary function of um how your team interacts i would say the companies that i see doing best they have weekly meetings where you know multiple different categories of people in in the e-commerce team are getting together reviewing the data and asking difficult questions about what that data could mean and what they should do next and building new hypotheses um, that that's really the smart way to do it. Yeah, I and I, I like what you got got to there, which is, um, you know, the the way that as marketers uh, we we have had to evolve with this change, uh, and it's not okay anymore just to, just to you know be really great at positioning your product as an example, although that might be part of product marketing. That that positioning the product in product marketing really has to be informed by the analysis of this data. And, and as you said, using those hypotheses, uh, going from data into information to make an informed decision about what that positioning should be. Uh, I'd like to pivot us a little bit. One topic we haven't really, uh, we haven't really covered much yet is localization. Uh, and obviously, it's, it's something we hear a lot, uh, hear a lot about. And what localization usually comes down to when people think about it on the surface is, well, you know, if I've got marketing content out there, or I've got engagement out there, you know, I, I need to translate it, right? Well, sure, that, that's kind of the obvious point. But what are the deeper points around localization when it comes to knowing who your customers are? Uh, that should really be driving your decisions or folks in the audience should be thinking about. And Linda, let's, let's go back to you for your thoughts on this. Well, you touched upon earlier, you know, um, the regulations that can be around things. There, we're dealing with complex business models, complex, you know, routes to market, complex channels, et cetera. Um, there can be things like, you know, this product can't ship to California for like regulatory reasons or can't ship out of the country. Um, you know, certain accounts may not be able to have access to 
portions of your catalog or whatever, right? These, these, these rules. And I think it's really important to have flexibility in how you apply business logic, not just when you get your platform stood up, but also as things constantly flux and change, tariffs, et cetera, all this kind of thing. Um, it, we live in a dynamic world. So the ability now, especially with this trend towards headless commerce and using APIs, gives you that opportunity to have more uh, responsive and very fine-tuned business logic that you can apply to different, you know, different domains, your dot country, you know, domain mm -hmm. or your different business unit or, or whatever you need. So I think in the past, you know, it was really difficult because you had to code one, you had to code one rule, you know, into your back end. And now um, I think things are a lot more flexible and, and, and we need that in this kind of environment. Yeah, and in, in some situations, as you mentioned, where you know you might be going cross border and you have to worry worry about things like tariffs and landed costs. In other situations, maybe through an existing distribution network, uh, you know you've already imported and you have product in market, and you know the different kind of logic you may need to apply uh, changes. So you know localization goes a lot more beyond you know just that language or or that translated content. Uh, uh, Jeremiah, to, to turn this back over to you, what are some of the aspects of localization from your perspective that uh, are kind of easy pitfalls? They're, they're easy to miss uh, that can create real problems for customer engagement. Well, I think the, the most obvious one is, uh, you know, understanding your importation and uh, exporting rules as well as uh, cross-border currency issues. I mean, from both a business perspective, but the consumer perspective, they don't make sense. You know, there's lots of people who think, oh, I've got my web store up, I can sell anywhere in the world. And you take somebody's cash and then the customer is disappointed because they're having to pay, you know, more to the delivery service or maybe something gets held up in transit. Um, you know, I, most companies just don't think through that stuff until it becomes a problem and it can become a problem really fast. Um, I have seen products held at borders before. I had, you know, imagine ordering a whole bunch of a thing and having it just like stuck at a border. And I have, I've seen that happen numerous times because the paperwork um, was not in order, both for the box, but in the order itself. And these are things that there are solutions out there for. Um, obviously, it's the competency of companies like like Digital River to help with some of those solutions. But you know, at the same time, it's you know, you, when you're building a business, you have to know where you're going to sell through. And I think it, you know, to kind of loop back to what you and Linda were saying, there's, you know, localization is not simply translation of your of your product experience. Um, it is so much more than that. Um, and ensuring you're following local laws and complying both at the product level and at the commerce level is super, super critical. And just, just asking yourselves, are there anything like, you know, do we have to be certified in this country? Do we have to, um, do we have to handle tax different? Um, how do we pass the cost of tax on to consumers if that's required? And how do we then pay the taxes? Like these are things that will keep your business operating smoothly. You don't want to launch into a new country um, or even suggest to these consumers that they can buy, you know, out of country and then create a consumer problem for yourself. Yeah, you, you make a really interesting point. Uh, oftentimes when we think about regulation, uh, we tend to just think about, uh, you know, my brand could be at risk. Uh, 
with some regulatory agency or, or governmental body. Uh, what we tend to lose sight of sometimes is the impact that can have the customer experience. Um, and, and given the nature of the transaction, you know, as you explained, uh, as a customer, I, you know, I see a, a foreign transaction fee on my card statement that I did not expect. I end up, you know, paying for a product that hasn't been delivered to me and I may charge that back. They've lost a transaction and, and probably lost a customer. Uh, over the over the challenge that I have there, and and of course you put that over a volume of customers, and that could be two, three, five, six percent of your customers being impacted, and over a volume of revenue, uh, that is meaningfully going to hurt your bottom line. So it's it's a really interesting point that you make that the concept around understanding and knowing regulatory, understanding and knowing uh, what plays into a transaction being successfully processed, um, those items have very important points around localization as well. Um, so we are, uh, we're coming up toward the, the end of our time here. And really what I'd love to do with our, our last couple minutes is, is to invite each of you, Jeremiah and, and Linda, uh, to give us some, some final parting thoughts for the audience. You know, as they think about engaging customers, as they think about really knowing who their customer is, um, if there's just one or two things uh, that you would encourage the audience to to focus on, um, I, I'd love for you. I'd love for you to comment, uh, Linda. Why don't you start us? Yeah. Well, we live in a, a, exciting times, right? So, you know, as a digital leader, as someone with uh, some influence over your business and over the direction that you're going. It, it can be intimidating, right? Because there's always an option of do nothing and stay safe or stick your neck out and take a risk to fail. So, you know, uh, there's no one answer for everyone, but small incremental changes, you know, what is that adjacent possible? What is that next little thing that you can test, can fail fast, um, can, can kind of be the, the bridge between those two? No, I think that's a really good one. Uh, for all the stuff we talked about, it can be intimidating to think, wow, I've got to go out and do all of this right. Uh, and it's really about find a couple points that'll move the needle, be willing to move quickly on them and iterate, right? Uh, I think that's solid. Thank you, Linda. Jeremiah? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I would speak to any executive leaders who might be listening to this, that, that the direct consumer space especially in these uncertain times, is your first stop to be able to interact and keep your customer engaged with your brand. Um, it shouldn't be treated as a second-class citizen, but instead should be um, a guidepost so that you can even improve how your channels perform. So, you know, I, I'd highly, highly encourage anyone who isn't actively, you know, looking at direct-to-consumer that they take that on. Um, and like Linda and, and others have said a podcast, like it's okay to be incremental about it, but to neglect it is to miss a giant opportunity and to be able to adapt when times are difficult. Great. Thank you. A really good point is that having that direct channel, um, it really gives you the end. Uh, that's the starting place. We heard Rahul talk about it relative to Micron. Thank you guys very much. Great panel today. Uh, I love listening to you. I always learn so much from it. And, and thank you listeners for joining us today. Uh, our next 
live virtual event is on July 1st and is the third of our Commerce Passport series. Uh, we'll be talking about how to deliver a localized shopping experience uh, and really uh, uh, one of the points we, we didn't even get to today, but optimizing payments uh, to really drive global conversions, the payment message you use. You can register for that at digitalriver.com slash passport. Uh, and for details on the next episode in the Uncertainty into Opportunity series, visit us at digitalriver.com slash opportunity. Thanks again, everyone. You've been listening to a special edition of Commerce Connect presented by Digital River, part of a series of live virtual events and podcasts designed to help you grow your global e-commerce business. Find out how you can attend a live virtual Uncertainty into Opportunity event at digitalriver.com slash opportunity.